I think that these companies are facing bigger challenges today than they've ever faced. Having said that, the stocks are priced for that. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we, we look at Netflix stock. I mean, I got the chart pulled up right here in front of me. Netflix is trading at 2.6 times trailing sales. Mm -hmm. A couple months ago, it was trading at 10 times trailing sales. It's average at 10 times trailing sales multiple for two years, two, three, four years now. Uh, the last time it was this low, 2.6 times trailing sales. Uh, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back <laughs> to 2013. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, we both had a little bit of a long weekend, but and I think we're still both in a little bit of recovery mode, but how you doing today? Hey, Aaron, good to see you. Yeah, um, I don't know, dude. The one thing about being a father of a two-year-old is you are <laughs> constantly sick. Uh, it's like mm. you're never that sick. But you're never fully healthy. Like you're a constant seven. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, got a little, the kid picked up a little cold over the weekend. So it's now spreading throughout the family. And yeah, so if I sound a little raspy or feel a little low energy today, that's, that's why. Battling the cold right now. Well, you look great to me, and I'm looking well, forward to getting you, into buddy. all your insights in just a few seconds. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicle, vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. A lot of things to cover, so let's dive right in. Uh, starting off with big tech. Uh, we know you're bullish on pockets in the hypergrowth sector, small to the mid-cap size. Um, but how do you feel right now about big tech uh, now that we've seen some substantial declines in these names, names like Meta, Netflix, Google, Uber, basically the fang, stops, fang stocks right. are trading at or at near decade-low valuation multiples? Yeah, Aaron, that's a great question. Um, we do spend a lot of time talking about small mid-cap tech, the next next wave of disruptive technology stocks. But at the end of the day, um, big tech is big tech for a reason. Uh, and that's because they have built empires around delivering products and services of unrivaled quality that all of us use um, on a daily basis, a lot of us. Those stocks are, to your point, trading at or near decade low, if not all time low valuations. And I think that's a pretty attractive setup uh, for these stocks. I have been a noted bear on big tech for a while, going all the way back to mm -hmm. July 21, uh, I believe is when I kind of first went public with a, a bearish <laughs> big tech slant saying, you know, Facebook is losing market share. Um, the Facebook platform is all but dead. Uh, Instagram is losing share to Snap and TikTok and Messenger and WhatsApp. While fantastic messaging platforms, it's just really hard to monetize messaging. So uh, I was saying, hey, 
you know, buyer beware on, on Facebook. I was saying buyer beware on Netflix. Competition was ramping. Buyer beware there. I was saying buyer beware on Amazon. Everyone's building Shopify stores these days. Everyone's building their own directed commerce sites, Lululemon, Nike. Maybe the need for Amazon is, is, is uh, eroding. Um, so I said buyer beware on Amazon. Uh, so across the board, I was saying buyer beware on these, on these big tech stocks. And that's because I felt like they were losing market share. And that remains true today. Um, in fact, more true today than possibly ever uh, at any point in history. Facebook is losing more market share more rapidly than ever before. Talent mm -hmm. is leaving the company in droves. Netflix is really facing the competition struggles. I mean, subscribers are not even growing anymore. I, I think Apple Plus is making Apple TV Plus is making way better content than them. Mm -hmm. I think Disney Plus is making way better content than them. Um, so they're losing market share more rapidly today than I believe they, they ever have in, in their history uh, as a streaming company. Um, and Amazon, I think, is really uh, riding the struggle bus today because we're going into what looks like it's going to be a recession. Uh, consumer spending is going to take a hit. Um, the e-commerce side of things might take a hit as well because it's really tough to see um, – you know, with oil prices and gas prices where they are, Amazon continuing to offer free delivery on all items. Maybe they cut back a little bit. And if they don't cut back, that's going to be a hit on, on profit margin. So that's going to hurt the stock. So I think that these companies are facing bigger challenges today than they've ever faced. Having said that, the stocks are priced for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we, we look at Netflix stock. I mean, I got the chart pulled up right here in front of me. Netflix is trading at... 2.6 times trailing sales. Mm -hmm. A couple months ago, it was trading at 10 times trailing sales. It's average at 10 times trailing sales multiple for two years, two, three, four years now. Uh, the last time it was this low, 2.6 times trailing sales. Uh, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back, gotta go back <laughs> to 2013. Okay. When this company was still trying to figure its identity out as a streaming player. Remember, mm -hmm. 2012 was when they split the, the DVD mail business and the streaming business. So we're talking a year after that split. This company's still trying to figure it out. Wall Street's not confident in the streaming narrative. They're not sold on it. At that point in time, this is a 2.6 times trailing sales company. It's a 2.6 times trailing sales company today. So that valuation set up pretty attractive for a company that we know is going to keep growing. Right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I stated, they have massive competition challenges today no doubt mm -hmm. but i still have netflix my parents mm -hmm. still have netflix my friends mm -hmm. still have netflix aaron do you still have netflix i still have netflix <laughs> netflix still makes great content i think mm -hmm. the others are, are making are making great content too but netflix still makes great content this most mm -hmm. recent season of stranger things oh mind blown <laughs> fantastic that final episode, mm -hmm. that cliffhanger they're leaving you for July 1, which, by the way, is my birthday. So that's going to be the best birthday <laughs> gift ever. Um, but uh, that last episode was, I mean, I was just, whoa. I, I rewatched mm -hmm. it like three times. That's how much I loved it. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think Netflix is still making great content. They still have a great service. At 2.6 times trailing sales, all I need for them to do to make the mm -hmm. stock work is pull off 10% revenue growth a year with some marginal profit margin expansion. That mm -hmm. seems very doable. If we're talking mm -hmm. maybe mid single digit uh, subscriber growth, throw on mid single digit um, pricing growth, 
margin expansion through economies of scale, figuring out better ways to produce content, more cost-efficient ways to produce content through price hikes. Seems pretty achievable. Very, very likely they pull off 10% sales growth with some margin expansion to turn this into a you know, a low teens, mid teens EPS grower, 2.6 times sales for a mid teens EPS grower. That's a really good setup. So I like what I'm seeing with Netflix stock was bearish. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it's time to start getting semi bullish, if not full bullish on Netflix stock. You look at meta, um, Mm -hmm. Facebook meta, I guess we got to call them meta now because they actually did the ticker change, didn't they? Um, so let's talk about meta. Uh, yeah, I still think they're, they're losing market share dramatically, but Instagram's Instagram, man, Mm. that's a behemoth of a platform. So long as people want to, want to show off visually, whether it's their bodies or their experiences or their wealth or whatever it is. And people want to show off that's just innate human psychology. Mm -hmm. So long as that exists, Instagram is going to be a behemoth of a platform. So long as influencers exist, Instagram is going to be a behemoth of a platform. Uh, I think they're doing some pretty innovative things, trying to tie up with Shopify, create uh, shoppable um, social media posts and ads and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think that, that, that there's a really cool angle there. And then what they're doing with, with the metaverse, I mean, everyone thinks Zuckerberg's crazy, but you know, Zuckerberg understands humans better than anybody. Uh, that's just, that's the carte blanche truth is, you know, back in 2004 when he created the social media platform and everyone's like, we're not going to go online and start talking to each other and meeting people online. That's silly, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> what are you talking about? And, you know, 15 years later, here we are, the entire internet's doing that. So, mm-hmm. um, I think Zuckerberg has a penchant for thinking way ahead of the rest of us. And what he's doing with the metaverse is probably going to pan out. It's, it's probably going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just not at all priced into the stock. It's, it's super, super, super cheap. So that's another name where it's like maybe it's maybe it's time to start getting uh, bullish over there. Now, the one thing that concerns me about meta versus Netflix is I'm not seeing a churn of talent at Netflix. I'm seeing the talent stay. Uh mm-hmm. Over at Meta, we're seeing some major talent churn. We're seeing some major uh-huh. important players, most notably Sheryl Sandberg, uh, leave the business. And that's big because Sheryl Sandberg, many could say, it was as important to Facebook's growth trajectory over the past decade as Mark Zuckerberg was. She uh-huh. was the person that came in there and figured out how to do mobile advertising, which is when that stock, remember Facebook had an IPO and was a busted IPO for about 12 months and then reverse mm-hmm. course and started secular bull market, bull trend, because they figured out mobile advertising. That was a Sandberg thing, not a Zuckerberg thing. So mm-hmm. the fact that she's leaving does get me a little bit bearish. So I'm not as bullish on, on the meta wheelhouse as I am on Netflix. But in that realm of big tech stocks that have been crushed, I think those big tech companies are facing massive challenges. But their valuations fully reflect that. And these companies are going to be able to grow quickly enough to make those valuations work and make the stocks work. So I think it's time to start looking into the big tech space for the first time in, you know, several years even. So it sounds like the, the, the picture that you're painting for us right now is that if, you know, we're at this kind of restart point based on where their prices are right now, where if you had FOMO about buying into these stocks back in the day, this is the opportunity where you kind of can. Uh, yes, but I mean, you got to be selective on, um, got to be selective on, on what you're picking. Like mm-hmm. I said, I think Netflix is good. I think Meta is is all right. I think Amazon is good. Amazon's trading very low. It's they're not getting much credit for the Amazon Web Services business, which is a 
behemoth and is going to continue mm-hmm. to grow very, very rapidly. Um, Microsoft and Apple still look pretty expensive to me. I think you maybe want to wait on those to come down a little bit more. I was um, going to ask, are there any names that you urge caution on? Yeah, I mean, those, those are fabulous companies. But, I mean, let me let's pull up right in front of me. Um, you know, if I had to talk about talk about apple right um mm-hmm. you know that's that's still at 5.8 times trailing sales and throughout the 2010s this was a stock that averaged three times trailing sales mm-hmm. so we're not like we're not below where we were on a historically normal basis we're below where we were during the pandemic basis but not during the 2010s and so what i'm looking for are big tech stocks that are the same quality of an apple the same quality of a microsoft but trading at valuations below where they average in the 2010s. I don't care about the pandemic era valuations. Those were kind of fairy tale land valuations. They were driven by a lot of uh, free money policies. And I don't think we can, we can't benchmark to those. We have to benchmark to the, the 2010s valuations. And when I look at Microsoft, or when I look at Apple, 5.8 times trailing sales, three times in the 2010s, not all that attractive to me. I look at Microsoft, um, Microsoft out of the 2010s average, let's see, um, you know, four, five, six times trailing sales. Now we're at 10 times trailing sales. So we're off the highs, but still above where we were in the 2010s. Those are names Mm -hmm. I'm not as bullish on. But I look at like a Meta, I look at like a Netflix, I look at like an Amazon, and those names look pretty interesting. NVIDIA, I think, looks pretty interesting, though. NVIDIA, I do warrant a little bit of caution on simply because I think the recession exposure there is pretty large. Uh, mm. People have seemed to forget that, or seem to forget that the semiconductor industry is cyclical. You know, it booms and it busts, it booms and it busts, it goes with the economy. Mm. And if the economy is indeed going into a recession, the semiconductor industry is going to take a massive hit. That's what happens. Demand dries up, supply builds, that that industry takes a big hit. NVIDIA has secular trends powering its growth narrative, but it's not going to be immune to a semiconductor industry recession. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be a little bit cautious on NVIDIA. But like I said, there are definitely some big tech names out there that, that are looking pretty interesting um, at current levels because they are going to keep growing and their valuations simply don't reflect any growth at all. Gotcha. Well, I love hearing you talk about big tech. And another topic that I love hearing you talk about is oil. Uh, so moving on to oil. Oil's <laughs> given up some gains over the past couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Still holding... Well over 100. Um, We know short oil is one of your biggest contrarian calls at the moment. And Mm -hmm. I just want to check up on some of the latest developments here. And we have a relevant fan question that hopefully we can segue into. Um, Can you please walk us through how crude uh, crude oil will crash uh, once it blows the top off of 140s, 150s, unless more oil comes to the market? Um, Yeah, for sure. Let me, I think the best way to start this conversation is to pull up a chart that I made over the weekend. <laughs> All right. Because I think it really illustrates what's going on here and why it kind of encapsulates why I'm so bullish, really, on um, this short oil sort of call. So let me pull it up over here and then let me get the uh do 
to get the screen share going. Sorry about this, guys. I am no, we're good. Running a little slow today. <laughs> blame the blame the cold. Okay, can we see my screen? It is coming in. Yep. All right. History returns. Is the current oil bull market about to crash? Well, I'm certainly uh, hoping you read history rhymes and not history returns, right, Aaron? History rhymes. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I've read, I've read history returns. I yeah, reading's hard. Yeah, up, down, so up, this what what this chart does is it graphs um, the current oil bull market 2021-2022 okay. uh, relative to the 2007, 2008, 2009 oil bull market. Um, okay, and it you know the the x axis is days since fifty dollar oil. So okay. this is when oil popped above fifty. Um, and then mm -hmm. days since then, uh, this is sure. obviously the price of oil. So you can mm -hmm. see that the two are just tracking step for step. I mean, nearly identical paths, mm -hmm. right? Um, yep. We took about 350 days to pop above 100 on both. Uh, took another 50, 75 days to pop above 120 on both. And then um, right around day 385, started cresting and, and coming down. Started mm -hmm. cresting and coming down. So... These charts look very eerily similar. And then if you were just to look at these charts, what do you say happens to the blue line next? Right? It, it, I, it follows yeah. the, the orange line and it mm -hmm. drops. Boom, 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 boom. And it comes all the way down to oil fell from uh, 150 to below 40, nearly 30 bucks uh, during this crash. So a massive wipeout, the biggest wipeout in the oil markets um, ever. Mm -hmm. So now were we. Chart, Sorry, so, me, so let me, before, uh, before you go there. any further, looking at looking at this chart and listening to and comparing the two, what how does the geopolitical factors that we're facing right now is or is that not a factor in, in this analysis at all? Yeah, is, so I just, mean any, any anybody can anybody can put up two squiggly lines and say, Hey, look, yeah. it's a match as long as you move the dates around. Um I get that. <laughs> uh, so I'm not saying I'm not saying go short oil because of this chart. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that these lines line up so similarly because the macro backdrops are also so similar. What, what you have to understand is that for a moment, forget supply. Demand gets killed in recessions. Mm -hmm. Oil gets killed in recessions because demand gets killed in recessions. Oil just doesn't do well in recessions. And in 1990, 91, it dropped about, I think it was about 50%. In uh, 2000, 2001, it dropped, I think, about 40, 45%. In 2007, 2008, 2009, it dropped about 80%. I mean, oil gets killed in recessions. It's what it does because recessions dries up demand, okay? Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks that we're in this supply-constrained bull market and that those continued supply constraints are going to push oil to $200. That's exactly what they were saying in 2008. So mm -hmm. I went through and did like a whole deep dive and I just read a bunch of articles from January 2008 to June 2008. That's when oil mm -hmm. went from 100 to 150, pretty similar to what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. And 
everything was like oil is going to 200. We have supply constraints in uh, in the Middle East. We have supply constraints mm-hmm. in Africa. Demand is still pretty strong. Supply demand's way out of whack. There's underinvestment in the industry. Supply growth has been super slow for years. This has been building. We're going to be in a supply constrained market for years. Oil mm-hmm. 150, oil 200. It was like I was just reading all the articles. Like if you took all the articles from January 2008 to June 2008, mm-hmm. you could literally just – if you didn't have a date on those articles, you would it's think you were reading articles from January right. 2022 to June 2022 mm-hmm. with the only difference being as opposed to supply constraints in the Middle East and Africa, we're talking supply mm-hmm. constraints in Russia. That's the okay. only difference. So swap out Control F and replace uh, <laughs> Middle East with Russia, and boom, Russia. it's the same. It's the same Got article. It. It's mm-hmm. the same article. So what what ended up happening in two thousand eight though? We ended up going into a recession. Demand actually ended up getting killed in the back mm-hmm. half of oh eight, and oil prices. Everybody thought we were in this supply constrained bull market, but we were actually in a demand crashing bear market. Mm-hmm. So oil went from one fifty to 35 in a matter of a few months um could that happen again today i mean absolutely i think it is it is the base case outcome goldman sachs mm-hmm. said today recession over the next 12 months 30 percent chance next two years i think 48 percent chance i think it's higher than that i think we're going into a recession i think it's a good thing that we're going into a recession a mild mm-hmm. recession will help us kill inflation allow us to wipe out the excesses and form a sustainable base for a 10-year bull market so i think that's a good thing but mm-hmm. we are probably going into a recession. That means demand destruction. If we get a repeat of that 2008 scenario, it's demand destruction down to 40. And mm-hmm. so I think that history is, is repeating, rhyming, whatever you want to call it. If we go into a recession over the next 12 months, 18 months, there's no way oil sustains 140. Mm-hmm. It sustains 130. And actually, we've seen it come back down to, you know, it's 110 um, and I, last I checked, it was dropping again today, despite a, a broad rally in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's down a percent today to 109. So um, I think that oil bull market is is showing cracks. And I think uh-huh. I'm not making a short oil call. Like right now, I still believe we kind of need that one blow the top off rally. We didn't get that. Mm-hmm. We might not need it. Um, I'm still doing my research here. I'm not like firm in this call, but I am pretty confident that within 12 months, oil is going to be substantially lower than where mm-hmm. it is today. Um, so at the, so if, at the if, very if, least, if, yeah, go ahead. At the very least, people who are hurting at the pumps right now, they have some hope on the horizon. Well, yeah, and, and that, that's another thing. Um, the best cure for higher prices is higher prices, right? That, that's like a saying in economics. And mm-hmm. Just this morning, um, my wife was like, um, I'm going to run to Target. Do you do you need anything? And I was like, <laughs> uh, I need some um, some liquid death sparkling water. I don't know if you know about liquid death sparkling water, but it is my favorite. Anyways, um, and then afterwards, she was like, you know what? Is there anything closer than Target? And mm-hmm. I was like, uh, Target's only like seven minutes eight minutes away like what mm-hmm. do you mean like oh, i just don't want to waste the gas money you know like i don't want to do that <laughs> and that was like the that was maybe the eighth time she's brought that up over the past two weeks mm-hmm. and you know i think those decisions are starting to come into play if not they've already come into play mm-hmm. over the past few weeks or people are like 
Um, I'm going to choose the restaurant closer to me than the one farther away. I'm going to choose the grocery store closer to me. I'm not going to go out to save the gas. I feel like those decisions are starting to factor in because mm -hmm. another thing that's really interesting is, um, I don't know if, if you spend any time on, on Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook or any, any of those platforms, but, mm -hmm. um, for, when I spend time on them and when I'm seeing my other friends spend time on them, we're all seeing a bunch of fear content, a bunch of recession is coming content. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see that recession narrative play throughout mainstream uh, media consumption. When I say mainstream media consumption, I'm not talking about the news because nobody watches mm -hmm. the news anymore. I'm talking about mm -hmm. the social media channels that we all interact on every single day. Sure. Yep. There is now recession driven fears circulating in those channels. So mm -hmm. now you have consumers thinking maybe a recession's on the horizon. Gas is $6 a gallon. Yeah, let's not drive. And mm -hmm. I think that's the demand destruction you are starting to see that is only going to accelerate if we indeed do actually go into recession. If and when people start losing their jobs, we talked about all the layoffs happening. Yeah. We've talked yeah. about all the hiring freezes. I mean, we're about to get into an economy that's a lot different in the second half of 2022 than it was in the first half of 2022. And that mm -hmm. difference is going to be a demand difference. Demand is going to go from very strong to not very strong. That flip is what is going to probably be the impetus to break the oil bull market. At least that, that's mm -hmm. my opinion. Again, I haven't done enough research here to be 100% firm in that call. When I, when we have these conversations, Aaron, yep. you know, yeah. I like to be, you know, I research a ton of this stuff. I really mm -hmm. want to have my conviction in what I'm talking about. And here I'd say I'm like 75% of the way there. I sure. still have some more research to do to really firm up this call, but everything that 75% I have done is painting a picture of an oil bull market that's going to repeat that 2007, 2008, 2009 cycle and that we we could be on the verge of a pretty big collapse in, in the oil market. So anyways, that's my, my short oil thesis in a nutshell. <laughs> I, again, it's, I, I know that you're saying that you're only 75% on the way there with your research, but everything so far seems sound. Um, but moving on, uh, another market that we haven't checked in on a while, uh, the housing market. Um, I know your research there is, again, always ongoing. Uh, do you still, first question, do you still believe the housing market is on strong footing? And if so, why? Uh, strong footing in terms of, in terms of prices. Yeah. In terms of prices. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what people don't understand about the housing market, I think we've talked about this before, is uh, it's, it's a supply and demand thing, right? Mm -hmm. So- yeah. Demand is being curbed by um, higher interest rates, no doubt. Okay. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me one second. My throat, scratchy. All right, we're good. <clears throat> um, <laughs> demand is being curbed by higher interest rates, no doubt about mm -hmm. it. But supply is still super constrained. Um, mm -hmm. We just got the, the existing home sales report today. Um, we have inventory at about a million homes, okay? Okay. That's mm -hmm. nothing. For reference, prices in – a lot of people are comparing the current period to the 2005, 2006, 2007 housing bubble and subsequent crash. Um, there are, there, there's almost nothing in common with that. Um, mm -hmm. In that era, home prices plateaued. 
around mid to late 2005. That's home prices were steadily growing, and then they kind of went flat. They were mm-hmm. flat for about two years. Then in mid 07 is when they actually started to decline. What mm-hmm. did the supply side of the housing market look like at those times? Well, when home prices started to stabilize, go flat in mid to late 05, there were about 3 million existing homes in inventory in the U.S. market, meaning there are about 3 million homes for sale. So you mm-hmm. had a lot of supply. We have a million today. Yeah. So we are 2 million homes short. We'd have to triple the inventory today to mm-hmm. get to levels at which home prices started to not – I'm not talking about a decline in home prices, just – stopping growth, zero growth in home prices in 05. When home prices did peak out in 07 and started to decline, that Mm -hmm. inventory was around 4 million homes. So on a supply side of this equation, word a million, historically speaking, three to four is when you start to see prices stabilize slash decline. We got a long ways to go there. Month supply, that measures how many months it would take to clear all existing inventory in the market based on current demand conditions. That is only at, what did it creep up to? Because I wrote down the numbers this morning because I was just looking at the report. Um, We're at, what, 2.6 months supply today. So basically, Mm -hmm. in order to clear all the inventory of homes in the U.S. market, it would only take 2.6 months. Back in late 05, when home prices started to plateau, we had five months supply. In mid-07, when home price started to decline, we had 10 months supply. So basically mm-hmm. what I'm saying is the supply side of this equation, of the, the housing market equation, is about three to four times below where it needs to be in order to get that sort of 2007-2008 outcome of a housing market crash. Mm-hmm. The demand side is is shaping up a little bit like that. The, the home affordability index has collapsed and is continuing to drop because of higher interest rates. And it's getting close to levels that are comparable with 2005, 2006. So home affordability is dropping towards those levels. To, to be clear, it was lower at that time than it is today, but we are getting close to that level. So the mm-hmm. demand side of the equation is definitely dropping in a way that's consistent with, that, with the housing market decline. But the supply side's not at all. Yeah. And if only one side of this equation is at a level consistent with historical market declines, I don't think that means we get historical market. I don't think that means we get a market decline. It means we get market stabilization. It means we get a return to pre-COVID housing conditions. We get a return mm-hmm. to 2017, 2018, 2019. So I think you're going to see unit home sales continue to drop here. You're going to see mm-hmm. prices continue to rise, albeit at a slower pace. And then come 2023, 2024, the housing market is going to be pretty stable, characterized by very durable, very sustainable mid-single-digit unit sales growth and mid-single-digit HPA, home price appreciation. So mm-hmm. I think the market now, it overshot and it's coming back and it's stabilizing. But we're going to get to a market that is going to continue to grow as opposed to a market that's going to crash by 2008, 2009. The one kind of thing that could really crash this market is if a bunch of supply floods the market, right? If all of a sudden we go go from 2.6 months supply to five months Mm -hmm. supply, 10 months supply, inventory builds from a million to 2 million to 3 million. But I think that situation is highly, highly unlikely, if not impossible, because what created the supply glut in 2005, 2006, 2007 Mm -hmm. was a prolonged period, several years of overbuilding Mm -hmm. By mm-hmm. home builders, 
what basically happened is because of the subprime lending practices of practices of banks, that was mm-hmm. creating an artificially inflated picture of housing demand. So home mm-hmm. builders thought that because all these loans were coming out and all these people were, were wanting to buy homes, that demand mm-hmm. was just permanently escalated to this new high. So they mm-hmm. built like crazy. Then all of a sudden, those, those subprime loans blew up and that mm-hmm. artificially high demand was just sapped and you saw the real demand and it wasn't mm-hmm. that high. So all that overbuilding led to a supply glut and that is what kind of uh, led to that massive market crash. Um, over the past decade, home builders didn't build at all. Uh-huh. They built at a, at a, at a, at a rabbit's pace. And because uh-huh. of that, we have a housing shortage in the market today, not a housing surplus. So I think it's almost impossible for the supply side of the housing market equation to get a repeat of 2005, 2006, 2007 at any point in the next three, four five years. And without that, I don't think you see a housing market crash, but rather a stabilization mm-hmm. of the housing market to much more sustainable levels. And um, yeah, that's my housing market outlook for now. So, so let me ask you this. Then if, if supply is kind of, you know, in the area that it is right now, what do you think of the impact of this, the concept of prefab affordable housing? We talked about it a little bit after our show last week, and I wanted to bring it up again because it just kind of coincides with this conversation really well. But how will uh, those types of businesses, you know, Boxable, Roombus, Nestron, Zenny Home, yep. how are they going to have an impact in this market? Yeah, that's, 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 that's where the solution lies. That's, okay. that's where it is. What we need to do is we need to build more homes. You know, we we had this weird decade in the 2010s where nobody wanted to buy a home because you were scared to death after 2008. Like it it just scared people, right? And when mm-hmm. when you get scared like that, whether you're directly impacted or indirectly impacted, see friends impacted, family impacted, it it, it scares you. And it scares you into mm-hmm. buying a home. It scares you into taking out a big mortgage, taking out a big like it it, it just scares you and it leaves scars. Those scars took a while to heal. Home builders underbuilt, demand wasn't there. So the market was fine because supply was low and demand was low. Yeah. But now all of a sudden, those scars are healing. Um, there's a whole new generation of people that don't just want to buy homes but need to buy homes. My generation, we're 25, 30, 35 now. It's time to get out of your parents' house and buy a home. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's time to to to, to get get the, yep. the white picket fence in the lawn, establish families like mm-hmm. it, it's time for that to happen. And so there's this whole new wave of demand coming on, but supply is not ready for it. Homes take a while to build. So what is the fix here? The fix is the new technologies you're talking about. Whether mm-hmm. it is these like pre-built boxed homes or these prefabricated mm-hmm. homes or if it's 3D printing of homes, there's mm-hmm. going to be a whole, a whole new wave, and you're already seeing it, of technologies that emerge to rapidly build homes. And mm-hmm. we're all of a sudden going to go from what is a housing shortage to a housing surplus. That's my belief. So if there is a mm-hmm. home price correction, it is 10 years down the road, and at that point in time, it will be massive. But you need that supply to build, and we need home affordability to get better. And the way we do that is through these new technologies. So I'm very, very, very bullish on the new tech you're talking about. With unfortunately, with that in mind, not, being... not not publicly traded companies, so you can't really yeah. play it. Yet. But uh, yeah. at some point well, in time, they will be public. When they do get public, you're going to want to scoop those up because those <laughs> are really, really fascinating companies. So with that with that being in mind, that that, that 
you know, technology innovation is going to be the, the next thing for the housing market. Is this going to be the future of housing where you kind of, you go to a website, just like, you know, you would go to Amazon, you select your prefabricated layout, your home, the home that you want, and then, you know, it gets built in a warehouse and gets shipped to you in 90 days versus what we've seen in the past where, you know, it takes up to six months to build a home. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely the future. Mm-hmm. I think I think there is a future where you go in, you go to a website, you design your home, and you pick a lot, and within 90 days it's built and you move in. I, mm-hmm. I really think that is the future of housing. And that is a fabulous future because mm-hmm. it's a cost-efficient future. It's a yep. hassle-free future. It's a very convenient mm-hmm. future. It's a very flexible future. And this is this whole thing where it's like people, you know, there's a lot of narratives out there. Tech is dead. Tech is over. The the reign of tech is. No, it's not. (laughs) Tech makes the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And so long as that remains true, tech is not over. And I believe that we're only at the tip of the iceberg of what tech can do for a civilization. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tech can solve the housing crisis easily. Um, Tech can solve the student loan crisis easily. I don't think people, and I mean, I'm probably the quintessence of somebody who's made the most of, of his or her degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't think higher education is worth it. As somebody who has made the most of his degree, I, yeah. I just, I, I don't see the value add of higher education in the current climate where. Um, I can go to MIT OpenCourseWare and take MIT mm-hmm. classes, MIT certified classes online for, you know, a couple bucks, um, mm-hmm. where Chegg is now creating a platform where professors and teachers can submit their courses to this platform on Chegg, get paid for it, compensated for it, and I can go on there for 10, 15 bucks a month, access them, and take mm-hmm. them and learn from them. Yeah. So, um I think the technology is breaking down the barriers of higher education, allowing anybody to learn anything from anywhere at almost any price. And that, mm-hmm. that's a wonderful thing. That, that's an absolutely yep. wonderful thing. When you think about how much education costs, higher education costs, 30, 40, 50, $60,000 a year. A lot of people can't afford that. A lot of people don't have access to that. Technology is breaking down those barriers and democratizing access to what are skills that enable people to have uh, fulfilling, good, economically advantaged lives, right? So mm-hmm. I think that, that that's a fabulous thing. Um, technology has the ability to solve the energy crisis, the oil crisis. How, mm-hmm. do, we, how do we fix um, oil prices and kill demand for oil? Go mm-hmm. to solar, go to hydrogen, go to wind, go to electric vehicles, really build those out. Technology is a key to solving that crisis. So technology is the answer. There's a lot of problems in the world right now. feels like everywhere you look, oh, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. And guess what? Behind that problem is an emerging technology waiting to solve it. And mm-hmm. that's, what, that's, that's the step I think a lot of people are missing right now. A lot of investors are missing. The market's missing. It's, mm-hmm. They're seeing the problems and they're scared, but they're not – pushing the problems down and looking past them and seeing, Mm -hmm. wait, that tech could solve this problem. That tech could Mm -hmm. solve this problem. That tech could solve this problem. And if you do that, you're going to see a wave of emerging technologies that are ready to solve the world's problems and create a better, brighter future for all of us. That's what we're investing in. This next wave of technologies (laughs) behind the current, um, Mm -hmm. you know, wall of problems, so to speak. That's what we're excited about. That's what we want to invest in. And that's what we think is going to make the world a better place at the end of the day. So, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's the big picture philosophy here. 
Well, one of the problems that we're facing right now is inflation, and the Fed seems hell-bent on trying to solve that problem. Yep. Uh, but we got a host of weak, econ weak economic data last week. Uh, can you walk us through some of that data? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of data out there. Um, mm -hmm. let's, let, let's just say this, Aaron. The U.S. economy is very likely headed into a recession, but that recession will very likely also be mild, shallow, short. So okay. we talked about this before. People freak yep. out about the R word, but they over sure. freak out about it. It's mm -hmm. because recession, everyone thinks the most recent, 2008, or maybe they think 2020. Most people don't, but let's, most people think 2008. Sure. Yeah. That was not your typical recession. That was okay. the worst recession since the 1930s. And during that period, we've had a dozen or more recessions, and mm -hmm. none of them were like that. A normal recession, unemployment goes up two, three, four percent. Um, real wage growth remains positive. And mm -hmm. you don't, you get like a stock market decline of 30, 35%. So we're not talking like catastrophic end of the world stuff here. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking two to 3% up in employment. Your wage growth grows down a little bit, but remains positive and stocks go down. They're already down 20, 25%. So another 10, 15%. So it, it, it's not a bad situation. It's not a bad outcome really. Mm -hmm. um, but it does look like the data is increasingly pointing to that. And I believe that's actually a good thing. Because yep. what stocks can deal with, what the economy can deal with, is a recession. We've seen mm -hmm. that game before. We've seen 08. We've seen 01. We've seen 91. We, we saw 82. We've seen, we saw 2020. We've seen recession before. We know how to deal mm -hmm. with it. That's fine. Yeah. Give us the recession. Take it like some medicine. Boom, we're going to get better. <laughs> yeah. What we can't deal with is stagflation embedded inflation a decade of lost economic productivity because we can't get inflation under control mm -hmm. that was the 1970s and it sucked it absolutely mm -hmm. sucked for the economy it sucked for the markets um it was terrible so what we want to do is make sure that does not happen in order to make sure that does not happen we need to kill inflation as quickly as possible what's the quickest way to kill inflation a recession recessions mm -hmm. kill demand Demand goes down, inflation goes down, boom, we kind of reset the dial, reset the clock, form a mm -hmm. new foundation from which we can sustainably grow into a new bull market, a new economic expansion, a new prolonged period of growth. That's the best outcome here. We need to wash out the excesses that were built up during 2020, 2021 because of the COVID stimulus. We overshot. Mm -hmm. We overshot. There's no, no, no doubt about it. Regardless mm -hmm. which side of the aisle you fall on, politically, right, left, in between, I don't care. Mm -hmm. At the time, it seemed like a great idea to print money for people because nobody had any idea what the heck was going on. Yeah. We overdid it. We're paying. We, you know, we, we, there's a payback period here now. That's what's mm -hmm. happening. Cool. Okay. Let the payback happen. Let's wipe out the excesses. Let's form a new foundation. Let's get to a new bull market. So every time I see another data point that says – we're probably going into a mild recession, I get more bullish about stocks. I get more bullish mm -hmm. about the outlook for the economy because we need a mild recession to kill demand, to kill inflation, to reset the excesses. Once we mm -hmm. do that, we can enter a 10-year, maybe 15-year period from 23 to all the way to 35 where mm -hmm. we have a stock, a bull market, where we have economic expansion, where life is good for a lot of people. 
So mm-hmm. I think we just, we need this recession to happen. We want it to be a natural slowdown, not an artificial slowdown, meaning we want consumers to drive this recession and not the Fed to scare the crap out of people and drive the recession. So mm-hmm. there's things we have to monitor and risk we have to be aware of as we kind of go into an economic slowing period. But I think the most likely outcome here is a mild, shallow, short recession that hurts a little bit in the near term, mm-hmm. but then sets the foundation for what will be a very prolonged period of economic expansion and growth. Because like I said, problems, look past those problems, emerging technologies, the mm-hmm. next decade of growth will be defined by those emerging technologies making everything better. So that's where we stand on the recession, inflation, kind of long-term mm-hmm. outlook for, for market stocks and, and uh, the economy. So for for some for somebody who could potentially be hurt by this rece- by this mild recession as you're illustrating it, what would be the one takeaway that you would want them to walk away from your outlook of what's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years? Um, recessions are are a part of the cycle of capitalism. They are mm-hmm. natural, and if you're one that's hurt by it, then you always have to know that there is a tomorrow mm-hmm. and that tomorrow is better yep. because this okay. is what happens. You boom for 10, 12 years, you bust for six, 12 months and you mm-hmm. boom for 10, 12 years. So all mm-hmm. you have to do if, if you're impacted by a potential recession that does come is understand the pain is temporary mm-hmm. and it, it will subside. And when it does subside, it will be replaced by a decade of opportunity. So during this era is actually whether you're hurt by a potential recession or not during this era is the best time to start innovating and start thinking about ways to position yourself for what will inevitably be inevitably turn into a decade long mm-hmm. expansion. So uh, regardless of, of where you, where you stand, you're um, older, retired, your stocks mm-hmm. are down, you're young, just getting into the workforce, you lost your job. What these reset periods allow is people to come up with creative, genius Mm -hmm. ideas that define a better tomorrow. Sure. Look at 2008. All of the, not all of, but a lot of the great technology companies and services that we use were invented in 2008. We're started in 2009 in the aftermath of that crash because stuff was so bad back then. People were looking for solutions and people mm-hmm. came up with solutions. The human species is an incredible one. <laughs> when faced with problems, we come up with solutions and we make things better. That's what we do. It's what we've done for thousands of years and we're going to continue to do it. So mm-hmm. during this reset period is when a lot of innovation happens. A lot of incredible things can happen. So that would be my advice to anybody that's either watching us from the sidelines with stocks, uh, actively involved in it, maybe losing their job. This mm-hmm. is a temporary reset period, which allows for humans to be more innovative, come with better solutions. That's the foundation for what will be a much better tomorrow. So got to always see the forest through the trees. We say that with our investments and mm-hmm. I say that with life. It's a very important yep. thing just to do. See the forest for the trees always. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it seems like one sector that's heading towards a better tomorrow, at least as of right now. Uh, crypto looks to continue be on a little bit of a shaky ground, uh, but Bitcoin continues to fight and hold at the around the twenty thousand dollar level. It dipped around seventeen thousand over the weekend, um, which I mean, I saw that and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna put in twenty dollars for this and see what happens. Uh, because and again, it quickly rebounded to twenty one k where we we're sitting right now. Are there any updates in the crypto space? Um, yeah, sure. Um, we think that $20,000 is a critical level that will ultimately hold <clears throat> for, mm -hmm. for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, there is, there's a plethora of data and, and charts out there. Basically all of, I think we talked about this last week as well. All mm -hmm. of the on-chain data largely and strongly implies that $20,000 is a level at which Bitcoin should play strong defense. Mm -hmm. And it's a level at which, historically speaking, previous bear markets have bottomed. Not at $20,000, but in terms of realized price, in terms of the NBT mm -hmm. ratio, in terms of uh, 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 the price spent uh, from long-term holders to short-term holders ratio. These are all kind of on-chain data metrics we're looking at. Based on those data, there, there, there are points consistent with previous bear market bottoms. So that would strongly mm -hmm. imply that $20,000 is a level at which we play really good defense on Bitcoin. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden take a V-shaped recovery and go to the moon now. But mm -hmm. what it does mean is that we probably enter a period of consolidation, of healthy consolidation, which allows us to form a basis for the next bull market, which mm -hmm. probably occurs within 12 months of the 2024 halving. So you have a halving in early 2024. That means the next bull market probably starts Q1, Q2, 2023. And this is very mm -hmm. consistent with the historical pattern of Bitcoin. You get mm -hmm. a boom starting 12 months before a halving. You get an accelerated boom into the halving after the halving. You start mm -hmm. to come down as that wears off. Then you start to consolidate. Then the next halving starts to come on the horizon. About 12 months before that, you start to boom again. And then you do that whole cycle all over again, lather, rinse, repeat. So mm -hmm. I don't think this time is different for Bitcoin. I think we're going to continue to follow that pattern, meaning we consolidate here over the next six to seven months, followed by a slight breakout into the halving, which is accelerating to a new bull market once the halving comes in 24. And so I think that's how Bitcoin progresses over the next um, several years. However, mm -hmm. there is the risk, which is a very real risk, which is causing us to not be as bullish as we would be otherwise, that mm -hmm. this time is different. And this time could be different because Bitcoin hasn't been through a recession, a real recession. It was through 2020. But, you know, mm -hmm. when we talk about the previous bull bear markets, the boom bust phases, we're talking 2015, we're talking 2018. The economy was on solid footing during those times. You know, we, we weren't going into a recession. We didn't have runaway inflation. We didn't have a Fed that was hiking rates super aggressively by 50 mm -hmm. basis points, 75 basis points a meeting. Um, we didn't have oil prices surging to 120, 130. So we are in a different world than we were in 2012, 2015, 2018, which would add credibility to the thesis that this time is different for Bitcoin. And in mm -hmm. that scenario, we do think Bitcoin could collapse at $10,000. So that's why mm -hmm. we're not like pounding on the table, foaming at the mouth, bullish sure. right now. We're bullish. We think yeah. that this is a bottom. We think that we consolidate before we go higher. Um, but there is a 
call it 15 to 20% chance we take a leg lower to 10. Um, mm -hmm. That's why we are preaching consolidation among the majors. We're preaching consolidation mm -hmm. on really high quality projects. And we mm -hmm. don't think it's time to go out there and start taking a lot of shots. Just mm -hmm. wait. Patience is yeah. your best friend in crypto investing right now. Why are you invested in cryptos? Because you think they're going to change the world over the next 10, 20 years. These are long-term mm -hmm. investments, folks. There's no yeah. need to get short-term greedy on long-term investments. Stay patient. Mm -hmm. Wait for signs that we're stabilizing, that we're consolidating, that a turnaround might be here. Then start taking some shots. But mm -hmm. right now, whatever you own, consolidate around that. Mm -hmm. stay stable stay in that ship and then once things start to get better open up the doors and start taking more shots but don't don't get overly mm -hmm. greedy here if you miss the bottom oh well we'll catch it five percent ten percent on the way up that's fine so I, I, is that dip over the weekend to seventeen thousand? is that an indication of that it is that one of the things that you're looking at as it as far as it dipping to ten thousand, or is that just you know, holding yeah, that, it was, that, was some, that was some pretty strong selling pressure over the weekend. That was pretty scary. But no, I mean, yeah. we bounced back, right? I mean, we, we yeah. went down to 17 and we came right back up to 21, 22. Where are we right now? Um, 21.3, 21.4. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, that was some pretty scary selling, but we bounced back up. And that's why you can't really, I mean, Bitcoin's volatile. And if, mm -hmm. it, if it, it, it broke 20 over the weekend, that for us, it wasn't like, oh, throw in the towel, it's going to 10. It's like, no, you got to give this wiggle room. <laughs> Right, you got to get yeah. a plus or minus three, four thousand dollars. So sure. we were looking at seventeen, sixteen. It's like okay, if we break below that, then it looks like ten is very possible. But mm -hmm. with as much volatility as is in Bitcoin and as much momentum is happening there right now, both on the upside and the downside, you got to give it wiggle room. You got to give it space, which is got why it. this consolidation yeah. is going to happen in a wide range, not in a narrow band. So you got to give it wiggle room. Gotcha. Uh, well, rounding this all out with some fan questions, uh, CS Low, uh, another Fed question. Now that the Fed has laid out their game plan for June and July, and with the media now talking about how a recession is coming, uh, how should investors adjust their portfolio holdings, what to sell, what to dip, what to buy, et cetera, to capture some short-term gains uh, from any post-Fed announcement, uh, temporary stock price spikes, and also be ready for what you've called the dovish surprise, as how you put it? That, they, that may be coming from them as well? Or is uh, yeah, that dovish so, surprise not even going to happen anymore? No, no, I think we definitely, I mean, the dovish surprise happens when we, uh, the economy collapses and we, we fall into a recession. Um, and that's, that's normally when the dovish surprise comes and that's normally when stocks start to rebound and actually do better. Uh, bad mm -hmm. news is good news, right? So yeah. um, a positioning for portfolios capturing short-term gains. I mean, we go back to this rolling uh, bear market theory and rolling bull market theory, right? We talked about how, mm -hmm. we talked about this several weeks ago. Bear markets don't just show up out of the blue. They mm -hmm. appear first in the riskiest corners of the market and then they gradually roll into the rest of the market until eventually they hit the major averages and everything's in a bear market, right? So mm -hmm. that rolling bear market and then there's the rolling bull market that once we roll into this bear market, we then roll out of the bear market into a new bull market where the things that rolled first into the bear market are the first things that roll out of the bear market. We roll in in okay. the same sequence we roll out. So sure. if you want to position yourself for a recession, for a downturn, for um, uh, what could be a Fed double surprise in, in the fall, what you got to do, in my opinion, is one – 
focus on secular themes, long-term growth themes. Don't really worry about mm-hmm. that near-term noise all that much. And two, <laughs> if you're looking to capture some near-term gains, I think you consolidate around the the riskiest corners of the markets, the the, the, mm-hmm. the parts of the market that were hit hardest. Because let's say the economy does go into a recession. Let's say mm-hmm. um, economic slowdown does become a, a big issue. Um, it's going to be that stuff that hasn't been hit that hard that gets hit pretty hard. Energy mm-hmm. names will get smacked. Um cyclicals will get smacked industrials will get smacked so those stocks are going to get smacked but what happens in recessions yields go lower so what do lower yields do they really benefit the valuations of growth stocks which as it happens tend to keep growing during recessions because they're powered by secular growth themes so i think that the stocks that actually work the best over the next six to twelve months are those secular growth stocks that have been hit super hard. They're mm-hmm. already priced for a recession, will benefit mm-hmm. from lower yields that come with the recession, should be able to sustain really healthy top and bottom line growth through a recession, and mm-hmm. um, have really positive long-term outlook. So they're kind of like names people can hunker down in and say, I don't care what's happening short-term. I know in 5, 10 years this is a winner. So mm-hmm. I think those are the types of names that start to see a lot of buying pressure um, in the event, what happens macroeconomically speaking that we believe will happen does actually happen. Well, that's actually a perfect segue into this next question from our boy Rob Norman. Uh, and he's talking about some of, because of the market conditions, some of those stocks are now penny stocks falling below $5 per share. Do their stock price inhibit their ability to rebound? Can institutions invest in them? Uh, can, uh, uh, excellent question, really. Um, so, so far has that um always comes back to sofi i love it i love it well because sofi that's why um sofi board wants sofi's Mm -hmm. board wants to have that reverse stock split um sure uh power because they want to be able to reverse split it back up to um you know whatever 60 bucks or whatever they they uh split it to um Mm -hmm. and that'll allow them to regain institutional buying interest yeah that that is a big problem with stocks below five bucks is that a lot of them will not be able to uh, attract institutional investment at those levels. But I don't think they really need to attract institutional investment in a lot of these companies. I think that they have mm-hmm. a lot of cash, and I think that they're going to be just fine um, in the long run. So I think that that is a risk for a lot of the shoddy operations out there, and that's mm-hmm. why you got to be selective with a lot of these names. But in the ones that we've been pounding the table on, I'm, I'm not at all concerned, like at all, really. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Awesome. Uh, last question from Mia T. Uh, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk speculating about both Lucid and Rivian going bankrupt in a near oh. future? Oh, Elon. Uh, I love it. I love it. As a Okay, so Elon's obviously a very competitive guy. I'm a competitive mm. guy. Um, yeah, when, I yeah. played, when, when I played basketball, um, yeah. I never talked smack about somebody I knew I was better than. Never. Mm-hmm. Cuz like you know yeah. you're better than them. Like I'm, I'm going to go drop 20, 30, 30 on your on you. You know like that that's fine. You know game over yeah. whatever. Like the results, you're the, not the better than me. I don't need to waste my time talking smack about you. I'm mm-hmm. going to get my yeah. 25. You're going to score 3. My team's going to win game over. Yeah. The only people I talked smack about are people I was worried about. People yeah. I was really concerned were better than me. People that mm-hmm. I knew could potentially lock me down. People that I knew could drop 30 <laughs> on me that would embarrass me. Those are the people that I talk smack about. Oh, that guy over at, uh, you know, whatever high school or whatever college, whatever university. Mm-hmm. He's not that good. He's, he's overrated, right? Like, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
I would talk yeah. smack about those guys because I was worried about their ability to threaten my perceived dominance in in basketball or in whatever it was, right? <laughs> same same thing with, with with the Tesla Lucid Rivian. Mm-hmm. Tesla's not out here talking smack about um, Lordstown Motors. Tesla's <laughs> Elon's not out here talking smack about workhorse. Mm-hmm. Elon's out here specifically and exclusively talking smack about Rivian and Lucid. Mm-hmm. Let the games begin. Bring it on. <laughs> he's talking smack because he's worried. He yeah. is talking smack. As, those are the two companies, the only two companies mm-hmm. that can actually rival Tesla in the electric vehicle market at scale. Also notice how the only other company he said that was going to make it was Ford, who is not mm-hmm. at all a competitor really to Tesla. I mean, they're making mm-hmm. the, the F-150 Lightning, but, you know, Cybertruck and F-150 Lightning, completely different audiences. And Tesla's mm-hmm. not even selling the Cybertruck right now. No, they're not making any deliveries of that. So yeah. he, he didn't throw GM in there. He didn't say GM's mm-hmm. going to make it. He didn't say Stellantis is going to make it. Those are companies mm-hmm. that really do pose a threat to, to Tesla. So Elon is is talking smack about the companies he's scared of. So mm-hmm. the more Elon talks smack about Lucid and Rivian, the more I get mm-hmm. bullish about Lucid and Rivian. Because it tells mm-hmm. me the guy who probably knows most about this industry, Elon Musk himself, is scared to death that Lucid and Rivian are going to eat Tesla's lunch. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very likely outcome. I think it's very possible that Lucid and Rivian really win a lot of market share in the electric vehicle space. And that at the end of the day, they are just as big as Tesla. For example, mm-hmm. our family mm-hmm. never bought a Tesla. Yep. Guess what? We are so excited. We, we, haven't, we haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. We are very excited to potentially pre-order a Rivian. Mm-hmm. We are, we're, 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 we're trying to get test drives in. We're trying to figure out mm-hmm. as much as we can about, about the car. Um, that, that is the only electric vehicle in the market that we think we're really excited to buy right now. I love mm-hmm. Lucid, but it makes no sense as a, as a man who just started a family, is trying to grow his family mm-hmm. to go get a really yeah. expensive sports car. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm about utility. I want function. I like reviewing <laughs> seats. Um, give me, give me the big car. So, um, gotcha. I just think that there's a whole wave of interest. And actually on that note, one mm-hmm. of the things I did notice, you know, we were really bullish on Tesla back in 2016, 2017, when everyone else was saying mm-hmm. they're you know, going to go bankrupt. Um, yeah. One of the reasons I was bullish is I started to see a lot of Tesla cars pop up in, in our neighborhood. I started around mm-hmm. San Diego. You go here. There's a Tesla. You go there. There's a Tesla. Yep. Go there. There's a Tesla. Guess what's popping up everywhere right now? Rivians. Lucids. The R1Ts, man. The Rivian mm-hmm. R1T. I, I saw about five this past weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my analysts who, who also lives in San Diego, he saw two this past weekend. We're, I'm starting mm-hmm. to see R1Ts pop up everywhere. I'm just saying, history repeats itself. History rhymes, mm-hmm. whatever saying you want to use. Yep. I definitely think Lucid and Rivian are in the early stages of a massive ramp that fundamentally threatens Tesla, and that's why Elon is talking smack about uh, Rivian and uh, Lucid. Now, to the actual merits of the claim, do they need more capital? Tesla is more likely to go bankrupt than Rivian and Lucid. And the reason (laughs) for that is Lucid is backed by Saudi Arabia, the Mm -hmm. deepest pockets 
on planet Earth. If mm-hmm. they need, they, they're not, they've already poured so much money into Lucid. They have huge mm-hmm. orders hinged on Lucid. So they're not going to let Lucid go under. If Lucid mm-hmm. needs more capital, Saudi's going to put more capital in. And they have mm-hmm. essentially infinite capital. Mm-hmm. Who backs Am- or who backs Rivian? Amazon. Another mm-hmm. cash generating machine with a huge balance sheet. They also mm-hmm. have pumped tons of money into Rivian. They also have huge orders waiting on Rivian. So they're not going to let Rivian go under. If Rivian needs more capital, Amazon's going to put more capital in. So we're basically talking about from a capital uh, requirements perspective, Amazon versus Saudi Arabia versus <laughs> Tesla. Which, mm-hmm. which of those three is most likely to go bankrupt in the foreseeable future? Yeah. None of them, not, none of them are likely None. to. But yeah. Tesla is more likely to run out of money than the Saudi Arabian public investment fund and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so long as those two entities continue to back Lucid and Rivian respectively, then I think bankruptcy concerns are the, the smallest of small worries <laughs> for those companies. Yeah. Well, once again, great insights, as always, for our listeners. Uh, do you have any last words before we wrap? Uh, I don't know how I made it through that podcast, Aaron. I am all of a sudden, I, I started like a seven. I know I said it was, I've, I'm finishing around a three or four right now. I'm about nah, to you, you, you were a 10 eight, the whole way through. 10 the whole way through. I'm, I'm working on it, man. I'm working on it. <laughs> well, I want to hold you up any longer. Uh, I want to thank you and thank everyone for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in our comments section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.